I'm Dr. Noah Emery. I'm Sam Acuff. And this is the Addiction Psychologist Podcast. Right. Well, today's episode, we have uh, Dr. Stephen Higgins. Uh, we're really excited about this episode. Um, Dr. Higgins is the Virginia H. Donaldson Professor of Translational Science, Vice Chair of Psychiatry, Professor of Psychiatry, Professor of Psychological Science, and Director of the Vermont Center on Behavioral uh, Behavior and Health at the University of Vermont. Uh, he's clearly accumulated a lot of uh, a lot of positions and affiliations, um, and he's doing some really cool work up there. He's going to be talking to us about um, sort of the history um, of contingency management, where it is now, um, and some of the work that he's done to facilitate its 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 growth. Steve, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks. It's uh, it's my pleasure. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, we're really excited to have you. One of my earliest papers uh, was, I think, your Higgins 2004 um, review of alternative reinforcement. So this is oh great, like yeah. talking to one of my yeah a formative uh, influence on my development. So thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to have this conversation. And um, Steve, could you start by telling us a little bit about your training history? Yeah, sure. Um... I did my undergraduate training at Shippensburg University in psychology. And while there, I uh, got involved with um, preclinical research. There was a professor, Ralph Payne, who was a student of Bruce Overmeyer from the University of Minnesota, hardcore learning and conditioning professor. And uh, he took a few of us under his wing. I was fortunate to be one of them. And so got an introduction as an undergraduate at a small school and um, was off and running with um, training in conditioning rats to press levers for pellets and avoid shocks and that sort of thing. Um, and then one of my uh, fellow students, uh, Joe Valentine, uh, introduced me to behavioral pharmacology and so I kind of learned about that. He went off to graduate school in behavioral pharmacology and I went off into applied behavior analysis at the University of Kansas. So one of the things, even though I knew I was introduced to uh, learning and conditioning and operant conditioning in particular, which really had my interest in the psychology, behavioral psychology that went along with it, um, I knew I wanted to work with humans. And I'm, can't, I can't really remember where I got the idea, <laughs> but I had this belief that human behavior could be studied scientifically just like any other subject matter. And I was uh, really had my, um, my sights set on, on trying to pursue that. And the University of Kansas looked like a great setting to do that because they were doing landmark studies since the mid-1960s on how you could use conditioning principles to uh, change human behavior around socially significant problems. Um, that's pretty, gives you a pr pretty good broad range. So um, I work with Ed Morris there and uh, Warren Bickle was a fellow graduate student and Ken Silverman and so uh, these are guys that I still collaborate with today, 40 some years later, yeah. but uh, 
And so we, we set up, um, we had our primary assignments in, in operant conditioning in humans, um, often with preschool children. Um, but then we also set up our own preclinical laboratory that didn't have any faculty involvement, although Ed Morris would support us financially and buy us some <laughs> colors for our rats and that sort of thing. And uh, we would do some um, studies, basic learning studies and some uh, drug studies as well. So we had this interest, and I shared with Warren uh, Bickle in behavioral pharmacology that came from my undergraduate training. And, um, and we would read about it, but we weren't really taking any coursework or whatnot. So as we got towards the end of our graduate training, of course, then you have to have a job. And so we were <laughs> looking for um, postdoctoral fellowships that would allow us to continue that work. And so I was very fortunate to get a fellowship at Johns Hopkins at the Human Behavioral, mm -hmm. the Behavioral Pharmacology Research Laboratory. Um, and I work with Maxine Stitzer and George Bigelow and Roland Griffiths. And uh, Maxine Stitzer and George Bigelow were already doing some seminal studies on contingency management. Um, so that was my first introduction to yeah. it there. Um, and yeah. Today, we are hoping to talk um, about some of your work on contingency management and contingency management more generally speaking, uh, for those yeah. who might be unfamiliar yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't get the kind of press, you know, that maybe CBT or something like that gets, right. uh, but, right. uh, but it probably should. And so we really yeah. wanted to dedicate an episode to it. And so um, this is this is part of a series on, on interventions for substance use disorder. Um, and so we were hoping maybe you could give us just kind of a brief overview of what contingency management looks like from a, from a treatment perspective, you know, talking a little bit about you know, the, the components and so forth and, and sessions and, and such, if you, if you would. Sure. So contingency management is an operant conditioning procedure. Um, we now know there is a behavioral economic feature to it as well. Um, but it was, you know, we certainly, it had a history outside of addictions before um, you know, it was ever applied in addictions or, you know, during the same time. So contingency management is a differential reinforcement procedure. So you're using, so we, we learned in behavioral pharmacology research that it's the primary reinforcing effects of the drug that drives repeated use in addiction. And the behavioral economic feature I mentioned is that reinforcers that um, offer immediate reward, immediate brain stimulation, reliable, can be very effective. Um, and so the idea with contingency management is you offer a material, reliably available, immediate reinforcer that's not a drug, a non-drug reinforcer. If someone who's struggling with abstaining from drugs can show you objective evidence that they haven't used recently. And then, so the reward is essentially stimulating those same brain areas that the drug stimulates, but for a healthy response of abstaining from drugs. And we don't worry too much, like by and large with how they go about uh, managing to abstain. This, this is a therapy that you almost always use in an outpatient setting. As long as someone who's in treatment for substance abuse disorder 
and struggling with abstinence can show you that they have abstained from using the substance, they earn this material reinforcer. On the other hand, if the um, test that you're using to objectively verify drug use shows that they've used, you withhold the reinforcer. So that's the differential part of it. And um, you do it systematically, you need to have you know, clear criteria for what drugs you're testing for. You need to have a, a firmly set test dates that somebody has to agree to show up. If they don't show up to be tested, then it, it counts just as if they had used drugs. It should be thought out, duration, the duration of the um, intervention. In, it, this comes as much from uh, clinical research practices as the outcomes, but it's often 12 weeks in duration, the, the uh, therapy, and you need to agree on the, um, what the incentive is and um, how it's going to be exchanged, you know, how immediate the uh, incentive will be available. Those kinds of things all matter and all need to be um, agreed upon in advance and implemented systematically. Um, and I like to remind people that, because a lot of times it comes across as a no brainer and oh, anybody can do it and training's not important, but um, the management part is in there for a reason. <laughs> I've witnessed a lot of people who mismanage a contingency management intervention. Totally. And of course, then, then the, it doesn't work very well. Yeah. So when it comes to, a set like what is sort of the session or what does it look like so if if someone was coming in and they were about to start contingency management like what might these reinforcers be and what would their yeah. experience be like well why don't i give you an example from our um cocaine research so we we started we used a combination of contingency management it's called voucher-based contingency management and the community reinforcement approach. So let's just set the community reinforcement approach for aside for a second. So um, somebody presents for a treatment, outpatient treatment for cocaine dependence, it's usually coming after a run of cocaine use and some bad things that happen either. Yeah. They've spent all their money, they were arrested, they ended up in the ER for some heart palpitations, some usually things have not gone well and they're presenting for treatment. So you you try and describe to them that, um, first of all, go Sorry, ahead. Steve, Please. are these people usually, I mean, obviously this is a very general question, but are these people generally motivated for treatment? Um, I think the motivation can vary. Um, the reason people come for treatment, things, th th what I was just saying a second ago about some unpleasant things right. happen. But it could be a probation officer leaning on them. It could right. be a spouse saying, that's it. Either you go for treatment um, or we're done. Or it could be the person just aware, like, I cannot believe, you know, what just went down over the weekend. That's not me. I've got to change something. Often you hear descriptions like, if I don't change, I'm going to be dead. And I know it. And I don't want that, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah. So, so it varies across individuals. But that's the general theme that, that something unpleasant occurred during the period of most recent period of use and there are naturalistic contingencies leaning on them to change their behavior. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so 
what we try and explain is that it's not by accident that they're having trouble changing the behavior um, and that cocaine is a very reliable reinforcer. Every time you take it, it does just what you were hoping it would do. And so what we would like to teach them is there are other just naturalistic sources of reinforcement that can function similarly, but they have to be developed over time. And that right now we're going to start with what can seem somewhat contrived, but are important. And we're gonna offer them vouchers that are exchangeable for retail items in the, in the um, community. If they can show us by a urine toxicology test that they haven't used since last time we saw them. And if they can um, abstain for an entire week, that's really good. And we're gonna even offer a bonus for, for achieving that wow. duration. And so um, we start off at a relatively l- a small amount of incentive. So if they can come in the next time since we've seen them and they have not used, we, in, in these initial studies, we would offer them a voucher worth um, $2.50. But each time that they um, came back and were continuing to be absent, the next voucher was worth more. And we had this escalating schedule of reinforcement. And so what we're trying to do is reward them for coming in without having, uh, having used and to get them invested in sustaining a period of continuous absence. And so that's kind of a operant conditioning or a behavioral economic way of thinking what the end game should look like, that people are abstaining on a continuous basis over long periods of time. And, um, and then in the background, and this is where the CRA um, comes into play, or it could be another kind of therapy, we're trying to prepare them um, for the, these, the contrived incentive program to end at some point and that there would be naturalistic sources, but of reinforcement for uh, promoting healthy lifestyles. The same, we assume in this uh, treatment approach that we're all vulnerable to um, drug use disorders. And that's, you know, but what protects a lot of us is that we have very effective competing healthy sources of reinforcement for everyday behavior. When people present for treatment, by and large, it's, it's a confession of sorts that those competing reinforcers aren't there. Maybe they have never really been there or somehow by the, the uh, a long period of, of using illicit drugs, they have lost those sources of reinforcement. So it's gonna take time to get that those sources um, either started for the first time or restart it. And um, we anticipate that to engage them in an outpatient setting, you're gonna need some contrived rewards functioning in that way initially while you work on the harder behavior change and and the building up of naturalistic sources of support for healthy living. So that's that's the basic approach that we use. It was 12 weeks of of voucher-based reinforcement. They could earn if they abstained all the way through uh, a maximum of just shy of $1,000. That was, that was um, meant to be attractive. Although I will say, when we first described the intervention in a grant application and we're telling colleagues about it, they laughed at us that that amount of money would be successful in getting people who are losing their spouses and their jobs and their houses and their freedom. 
Um, but then when we showed it would work, then of course it flipped around, like who's ever going to pay that amount of money? To... <laughs> but, right. uh, but the average payout was, was less than that. Cause unfortunately not everybody abstained uh, all the way through. So in our clinical trials on average, we were paying about $450 per uh, patient. Yeah. So it, it sounds like, um, this is, this is working really well for some people. And then for others, it's, it's, it's not working quite as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and that's the case. And so, you know, each individual situation differs and you can think about, you know, genetic reasons and they're all in there and there are important things to think about. But a lot of times what you see, it's, it's like um, the person is rooming with someone who deals cocaine and so they have ready access to large amounts or um you know they live in a in a really uh, bad part of town and they're always around other users and you know just so there are a lot of it varies across individuals for why or somebody just happens to run into a uh a person he used to use with and they get in a, a binge and they just go running off and yeah. you don't see them for until something bad happens again. So there's a lot of different reasons that it doesn't succeed. And, you know, as you guys very well know, you know, you just encourage the person to keep trying. Lots of people don't, aren't successful the first time, but, uh, but one of the things that we have found with contingency management is the best predictor of long-term success is the amount of continuous absence they achieve during the um, intervention period. And so I think part of that is um, that you learn some things that, you know, that you don't have to use that those during that period where you were succeeding, you actually had opportunities to use and you chose not to. And so yeah. I think there's some, some learning that's valuable longer term from that, from that experience. Yeah. Yeah, well, and it sounds like, you know, if sort of the goal of contingency management is to almost bring the reward of long-term abstinence into the present moment so that it can effectively compete with, you know, the immediate drug reward. And it sounds like in some of those cases, the immediate drug reward or possibly all of the other rewards that come with that, you know, like many of these people, their community are you know are in this group of friends that they that they use with or something like that so the immediate reward maybe just isn't quite strong enough or or large enough i I suppose to compete with that drug reward that's right i mean i think that's where the um behavioral economic viewpoint is helps us under understand it so one of the things we know scientifically is um having a short temporal horizon or being a, what we call refer to as a steep uh, discounter um, increases your vulnerability to substance use disorder. So what that means is that you have a little more than average, a bias for the present. You like things immediate rather than delayed. Well, if you're a, if you're a little biased in that direction, drugs can really, they, like I was saying earlier, they produce well, the drugs that people abuse produce immediate um, psychoactive effects are relatively immediate. Um, and they're very reliable. They're yeah. chemicals. They do what they're supposed to do when you ingest them. Um, and so that's what you're competing with. And 
by the person presenting and saying, <laughs> I've tried and I am not succeeding in changing my behavior, that tells you that there aren't effective competing naturalistic healthy brain sources of reinforcement out there for them. But the, but the challenge, in, and it was really when we started working with cocaine, it was um, just raging. It's like the current opioid epidemic, but this was the cocaine epidemic of the late 1980s and 1990s. And uh, people were on the streets, you know, prostituting themselves for crack cocaine and everything that people tried. <laughs> and they were trying every drug in the pharmacopoeia and every behavioral intervention, everything was failing. And, you know, so we, we were, as it was myself, Warren Bickle and John Hughes, we were three early career investigators that, trying to think of how to challenge, uh, to get a grant to take this on. NIDA had calls for proposals out. And, and we immediately thought like, you're going to have to engage these people in outpatient treatment or they're going to be gone quickly. Yeah. And so that, that, um, that kind of affective state where, oh my God, I just came off a bad weekend. I feel like crap. I got to change this. That wears off, you know? So they, a lot of times they use in, in cycles, you know? Yeah. And so you, you got to try and make some inroads while they're still kind of listening and, and feeling the after effects of the last um, run or else, you know, that there's, there's a decay in experience. It's just like, people who, um, who uh, discount the future, I was gonna say. The, but they also discount the past. And that's a part of Warren Bickle's research on delayed discounting that a lot of people aren't aware of, but he showed both sides of it. They, they kind of live in the present. So yeah. not only are they not looking forward to the good things down the road that they're given up by using drugs, but they're also quickly to they discount what happened to them in the past that was not good about drugs. So, so you, you've got a window of opportunity to try and engage them and get these non-drug uh, sources of reinforcement competing for behavior. And the evidence is that contingency management can be tremendously effective. Um, in fact, with cocaine and methamphetamine, there's no other intervention that in controlled trials, 30 years of trying just about everything people could think of, um, that's proven effective in an outpatient setting in a controlled trial. So, yeah. so it speaks for itself. And I think, I think of it as, um, remember I mentioned that I did preclinical research. When you yeah. do preclinical research around drugs of abuse, you will find no drug that works better than cocaine. I mean, it is just, <laughs> it can reinforce uh, behavior in rats and non-human primates just beautifully. And, um, and when I say humans, John Hughes, when I was doing my cocaine research, was doing caffeine research, and we were trying to understand caffeine's reinforcing effects. And I just smile, like the contrast when you you give people um, these these um, different doses, and some of them might have placebo, or it might be a small dose of caffeine. Or co and we would do parallel studies with cocaine, and the results were night and day. I mean, with cocaine you could see its reinforcing effects very consistently across all the participants uh, tested. And with caffeine, it was variable and hard to discern <laughs> and you better have a large N. <laughs> so so um, that's what you're up against clinically. And I think that's why contingency management is just based on very, very clear, crisp, 
behavioral principles of science, you know, behavioral science principles. And, and it can match against cocaine where so far everything else that we've tried cannot. And I think that's, that says a lot about it. And it's, and it's not like they haven't tried, right? There's oh. been many, many things out there for stimulant use over the years. You know, yeah. I remember when I was in undergrad, um, things like the matrix model and things like that were, yeah. you know, hot, hot tickets at the time, but contingency management has kind of been there in the background uh, yeah. or even in the foreground, depending on which year you're talking about. And right. so, and one of the biggest, I think, um, questions I get when I talk to people about yeah. contingency management is, you know, some of the ethics around like giving people yeah. money for it. And so I was just curious what, I'm sure you've got that question before. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I, I was just curious to hear your thoughts around, um, that, that, around that kind of myth around contingency management. Well, I think it's important to understand the science behind it, which we've been discussing here, that this mm. isn't just us doing some simple-minded idea. Oh, hey, we'll pay them. And then, the, you know, in a, like a, in a sort of cynical way. Um, in fact, what, what you should understand is <laughs> there's a reason people get paid to go to work. Yeah. <laughs> that, that if they didn't, they wouldn't be at work. And so- That's a really uh, great point, actually. The, and then I think, um, you know, a lot of times when I feel that, that kind of question, I think, wouldn't it be nice if human behavior was different than the way it is so that, you know, you wouldn't need to have incentives like that, that people just could see that, you know, it was ruining their lives and that they, um, that, you know, they were going to stop because of that and you could assist them, you know, uh, but, but it's the case, just the way that we have evolved, that that's with drug produced reinforcement, that's what addiction is, that the person is perfectly aware when they present for treatment of health, that all the terrible things, but then they have what we call in behavioral economics, a preference reversal. And that is that the drugs are available and they, um, even though relative to what could be available to the person if they continue to abstain, you know, a, a better they could get back with their spouse who, who left them over the last run and they could be with their children. That, that is going to take some work and that drug is just sitting there waving at them immediately available and they give in. And so even though they weren't lying when they said they wanted to give up drug use, but they just fail because of that allure of the immediate reinforcer yeah. in the long history. So why not use that science to try and help people succeed with drug abuse treatment and the data, you know, especially for psychomotor stimulants, but it's across just about every, every drug that we've researched with CM is CM can be tremendously helpful in that regard. So my sense is if we want to have effective uh, substance abuse treatment, we need to follow the science, follow the evidence, and the evidence is overwhelming in the support of contingency management in treatment engagement and engendering initial periods of abstinence, which create a tremendous opportunity for us therapists and for the patient, patient to develop additional sources of naturalistic reinforcement that can sustain that absence longer term. And not only 
effective. I think I remember seeing that it's also like cost effective yeah. as well, ultimately. Is, uh, I'm sorry. That it's ultimately more cost effective than m- many other treatments. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think not enough cost effectiveness studies have been done in drug abuse generally and, and with CM as well, but the, the cost effectiveness studies that have been done are, are supportive. And we're, we're doing one now on the application of that same um, CM model that we, that 12, well, we adapted the 12 week model that we use with cocaine um, for smoking during cigarette smoking during pregnancy. Because there we thought, well, even even if the evidence we have when we use CM with CRA for the community reinforcement approach is that we could get absence out as far as two years. So we we developed a way to to transition from the vouchers to the naturalistic sources of reinforcement. Um, But. Nevertheless, we got a lot of criticism that that persisted despite evidence to the contrary that, oh, CM only works while it's in place. And uh, and so then we look, but where there are populations where if it only worked while it's in place, that could be good too. And so women who are using drugs during pregnancy totally. is a great yeah. example. And so we developed and we adapted that same general voucher-based CM approach it's highly effective with pregnant uh, cigarette smokers relative to anything else that's been tried. Um, and it produces, we're, we're now right doing a cost effectiveness study. We're looking at birth outcomes. It, produ- it reduces small for gestational age deliveries. It gets women, it actually decreases craving and withdrawal during a pregnancy when they're trying to abstain mm-hmm. from smoking. So a lot of people think when you're when you're on CM and, and you're trying to abstain from drugs, you just have this terrible craving and like, oh my God, I want that voucher, but you know, I can't use, I mean, I want that cigarette, but I can't use or else I won't get my voucher. But actually, if you measure it, the craving goes down during the CM intervention and with smoking, so does the nicotine withdrawal. And uh, you get a you get a uh, larger, healthier baby, and um, the, you're more likely to breastfeed without smoking during the postpartum period. So there are a lot of benefits, and this cost effective. Um, but I th- I think we, I think in as I said a second ago, I think we could have done more cost effectiveness studies with mm-hmm. CM to help our case, and I think we could have done more cost effectiveness studies with. Um, with, uh, you know, all, all substance abuse treatments, they, uh, you know, yeah, we have some evidence and the evidence we have is supportive, but I think we could do more. Yeah, absolutely. And yet I think a lot of people haven't heard of contingency management. And although it, it was within the last maybe five years, I think the VA fi- uh, officially adopted contingency management, if I remember correctly, um, right. but but a lot of places have not adopted this as as a treatment yeah. modality. No, that's right, Sam. And it's a it's a you know probably the number one issue um, out there that that's um, relevant and maybe uniquely relevant to CM. So the current circumstance. So most substance abuse treatment in the United States is supported through Medicaid, the off the CMS office, Medicaid, Medicare. Mm-hmm. Um, and the inspector general's office in CMS has formally declared that they will not support, they will not 
um, approve use of their funds for contingency management. Wow. And the reason they get is that it could, it's almost laughable. It could result in fraud. Now, anybody who reads newspapers knows that fraud has happened a lot with Medicaid, I mean, for, you know, every device you can think of, right. someone tried to be, you know, undermined. Yeah, if could government. result in fraud was, yeah. you know, the reason then, then we shouldn't really be reimbursing anything. Anything, <laughs> just about. And, and the irony is that there's no, it's, they're not saying that we tried it and there was unbelievable fraud. Absolutely. It could relate, it result in fraud. So, um, so that's the that's recent. That's uh, 2020 um, Inspector General's opinion out wow. of uh, the CMS office. But it's also happening during a period of time where there's a resurgence of that cocaine epidemic that I mentioned, along with methamphetamine now. And it's particularly happening among people who have opioid use disorder. And it's wreaking havoc among those who are in, uh, enrolled in medication treatment for opioid use disorder yeah. or mode. And so we, in trying to combat the US um, opioid crisis, we have, the whole healthcare system has bent over backwards to get medications to those with opioid disorder use disorder, buprenorphine, methadone, naltrexone, and we have done so. And now with this uptick in the use of psychomotor stimulants in that population, it's undermining. People are dropping out of treatment. They're overdosing. So the psychomotor stimulants are often cut with fentanyl. And so they're, they're, there's um, you know, terrible increases in fatal overdoses. The only treatment controlled trials that works for psychomolar stimulants, including everything. And we talked earlier, including medications, every medication that people thought possibly could work. Nothing else works. Right now, the CMS office is taking a stand that they refuse to support the only evidence-based wow. treatment for this disorder. So that has people in the NIH, um, National Institute of Drug Abuse, Norvocal, others very concerned as they should be. We've right. got this, we've got this epidemic and you're saying that, that we can't offer this one efficacious treatment we have. And so in the um, year one, Biden-Harris administration um, priorities for drug uh, services, drug use disorder services, in that they had seven, as I recall, in the first priority is increased access to contingency management. Wow. So there is pressure to change that situation. And I think the uh, community providers, I think are much more open than they were years ago to contingency yeah. management. They are more evidence-based than the <laughs> inspector general's office, right. who I think suspect they're mostly the lawyers and accountants and whatnot, not drug abuse experts, Yeah, um, which makes sense. So I think things like I remain optimistic. So uh, we have a review coming out in uh, JAMA Psychiatry, a peer-reviewed paper where we went and reviewed every paper, every controlled study that has been done 
on contingency management for psychomotor stimulants, polydrug abuse, um, and um, uh, adherence to the treatment. And there's several, there were six different cigarette smoke. There are six different um, clin common clinical problems, but the one we were most interested in and, and, and gave us the initial reason to do the review was psychomotor stimulants. And the evidence is overwhelming. Um, the, I think it was 18 of the 22 uh, controlled studies on uh, CM psychomotor stimulants uh, reported statistically significant effects. The um, effect size, the metas is um, for drug abuse. It's in the medium large area. It's very clear, very striking. Um, and then what happens is interesting. It, when when um, you then try, instead of just focus on a psychomotor stimulant, and this happens a lot of times, you think, oh, well, how about all other drugs as well? And you start you start, okay, you can't use cocaine, you can't use methamphetamine, you can't smoke marijuana, you, you just <laughs> and, and you keep the incentive the same, you know, so it's just people get greedy, clinicians, investigators, right. and so the effect size, it's still highly significant, but the effect size starts diminishing. Um, it's effective for smoking cessation as an aid, you know, not a, I wouldn't recommend it as a treatment into, unto itself, but it, the evidence is, is reasonably good. Um, it's, uh, it increases adherence, as I said, with the medication regimen um, and, and other, other adherence challenges in, in that population. So I, I, I'm hopeful that that review coming out um, the, uh, this, in August of this year, um, in combination with the uh, priorities of the Biden-Harris um, administration, their Office of National Drug Control Policy, um, will put pressure. And I think help help the Inspector General's office see the rationale, see the evidence, and and um, that things will change. So I'm I'm optimistic, and um, yeah, we shall see. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be optimistic about. I think, you know. Good news, bad news, depending on who you're talking to. This isn't the 80s anymore, right? And yeah. and you know, I think a lot of the views on contingency management, the negative views on contingency management, were all bound up in stigma around addiction. Like, mm -hmm. oh, we're gonna give these people money yeah. to stop using what? Yeah. Right. right. And like, you know, just pick which part of that phrase you want to focus in on, giving the money, right? You know, what are they gonna do with the money? Yeah. Are they just going to buy more drugs? Right. Like, or like whatever. Right. And um, luckily I think stigma around these types of issues has been shifting culturally in, in an important way. We're far, far from, I think that criticism being completely eliminated, yeah. um, especially when you're talking about taxpayer dollars or these types of things where people are like, Whoa. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, but, you know, I, th I think you're you're right. You know, I um, I think things have changed a lot, and I think the opioid crisis helped yeah. with that as yeah. well. 
um, in that we we just came to grips with the fact that you know these individuals need medications, and in a way, right? It's a the medications that work for opioid use disorder are opioid substitution medications. Right. Yes. You can think of CM really, and and I think scientifically, I don't have many doubts that that's how it functions. So you're offering this substitute. It's not a a pharmacological substitute, but it's a reinforcer substitute. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's not, not of equal value to the cocaine user. I mean, no, if you, if you went out to uh, some community, you know, the street corners, some area where people were using cocaine and they weren't seeking treatment, you think you offer them a voucher exchange for retail items. They say, Oh, I'm not going to do cocaine tonight. I'll just take your voucher. No way. It's under the conditions where the natural contingencies are such that the person is trying not to use, they're asking not to Absolutely. use, they don't want to lose their spouse or their job or their life. Um, but they can't get the job done for because of that, these preference reversals I was mentioning, given how reinforcers work. And, um, and so this can be, this can offer yeah. assistance. So there's, there's reasons I never use cash in my contingency. The ones that I lead where you see I'm first author on the reports have always been some uh, voucher-based incentive. And it's mostly, um, out of ethical concerns of the type that you're, you might even say public relations concerns, but more, more, um, I just wanted to have control over it and, and not um, give people so much flexibility with how they exchange the um, reinforce, the monetary um, reward we're giving them that to get cause themselves trouble or, or, or other people trouble in, through bad publicity. Um, so you give up when you, when you, um, use a voucher, right? Cash, cash is almost unlimited in what it can be exchanged for. A voucher, <laughs> by definition, is more constrained. Yeah. So when you constrain it that way, you reduce to some extent its subjective value. You know, just as a as a, a mechanism of economic exchange. And so, you know, we we do that to to kind of protect the participant and protect the. Um, uh, the treatment approach and its reputation. So that, that's the rationale for that. And it's worked pretty well. And then when we combined it with the CRA, and that's the only, if you, there's a, a review by De Crescenza in uh, Close Medicine. It came out the end of 2018 and they reviewed all psychosocial treatments that have been tested um, for, psych, for psychomotor stimulant use disorder. And in control trials, and I, I forget how many trials there are. Fifty trials in seven thousand people, some roughly. I, I, I recommend it. Uh, it's a very, very rigorous and, and impressive review. But the the one intervention that produced the only intervention that produced long term outcomes was CM with CRA. And so what we did was during that um, while the vouchers were in place we were encouraging the participants to use their vouchers to explore alternative positive reinforcers. So gym yeah. memberships, taking their family out for, for some meals, um, just the kinds of things that the rest of us do who don't have drug Take use Take it disorders. for granted, yeah. Put, yeah, exactly. Um, and so we were able, you never, you know, in drug abuse treatment research or clinical work, you never get 
the outcomes as good as you'd like them, right? Like have everybody, you know, fixed and on to living happily ever after. But, um, you know, the data suggests that we had the best outcomes of any intervention. So I think that's another reason to use um, vouchers is you can offer more guidance towards putting people into contact Mm, with- Very focused, yeah. Yeah, alternative sources of reinforcement because- you know, when you step back, it's just so sad that either, you know, through happenstance, often people end up under the control with their behavior under control of these drugs, and they're asking to change it, and they aren't sure how. And it's sad, but the but the basic mechanism, like they could get that same reinforcement from healthy sources yeah. <laughs> if you could create the history. You know, and yeah, but at somebody like what was the average age in our clinic? I don't know, late 20s or something like that. By that time, a lot of times people have not done well in their education, their job records are bad. You know, a lot of the things that help us, um, you know, have rich lives absolutely with that, uh, the you know, keep our vulnerability low are are hard to get going with them, Yeah. yeah. And, and just the, right. When you think the, the function, right. Like it's so immediate and certain that, yeah. you know, it's challenging to, when that's already in place to yeah, say, to find something that can have a, a profile that's similar to that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's that's right. very challenging. That's very challenging, you know, working out or rearing children or, yeah. you know, even just getting a paycheck at your job, right. Yeah. Like are, are, are not as immediate and reliable or you have a, the, the kind of footprint um, yeah. on your mood specifically yeah. as, as, as some of these drugs do. And so that's, I think one of the beautiful things you talk about CRA being added to it, right. Allows a person some protection contingency wise, right. The, the contingency management does to help them in this early stages where they're still motivated and, you know, finding themselves in challenging situations and they have kind of something to hold on to like, Oh, I'll get the voucher. That's a you know yeah. motivator to help me. And then yeah. in, in concert with that, we're re- we're teaching them how to extract naturalistic rewards from alternative sources in their environment that have a longer have longer legs. Right, these yeah. things can last longer in your life and don't come with some of the side effects like you know arrests or you know job loss or these types of things. And you know, as those two things take hold over time, you get yourself a really potent treatment. Yeah. Uh, and we talk a lot about on the, on this, um, at least, at least it's kind of been like a thread through several yeah. episodes, this idea of like helping people find what makes them feel good in their yeah. environment is such an un, underappreciated component of substance use treatment. Um, yeah. It's not just white knuckling, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's about trying to find those things, those, all, those external contingencies that have the ability to be in place long-term. Yeah, yeah, that's that's well well stated. I, I agree with everything you said there, and um, you know, I th- I think uh, you know, the the histories that that people get using drugs is something that it's easy to overlook, and yeah. um, we shouldn't because yeah. that hit like uh, you know those histories are so strong, and like you pointed out astutely that. You know, you aren't going to find naturalistic sources <laughs> that offer exactly the same effect. Um, 
but but you can find substitutes that you again very astutely but they don't have the side effects in fact mm-hmm. they, they, whatever side effects they have are just you know the warm hug of a child yeah. or something or you know just so much more meaningful in some ways but they aren't they aren't necessarily shooting the you know causing the dopamine squirts like yeah. cocaine yeah. did but um over time they can be beautiful substitutes and i think you, you, what you said had me thinking about, you know, it's the same thing with the medications, right? So yeah. buprenorphine can be a highly effective substitute for someone who, who's for heroin, for someone who's, who's um, addicted to heroin, but it's not the equal. I mean, no, no one says like, oh, I'd rather have buprenorphine right. than heroin. It's just they're willing to take that inferior substitute just because their life overall is so much better. The yeah. density, the overall density of reinforcement is much, much higher when they are using buprenorphine or when, you know, naturalistic sources of reinforcement are available in the cases with cocaine yeah. where we don't have a medication like, like buprenorphine. But so I, I really think um, what you offered there, Noah, is tremendously important. And I think that as a society, in, in many ways, we've we've slowly whittled or maybe even quickly, like in the 70s and 80s, whittled down the types of alternative reinforcers that someone who is trying to escape some sort of drug use can get. Like, I mean, if you get arrested, then that goes mm-hmm. on your record. It's harder for you to get a job. The yeah. I mean, we talked with Noel Vest uh, about, you know, the uh, uh, fair, fair chances, I think, uh, yep. about. Marking whether or not you've ever been um, to prison for a federal crime. Yeah. Uh, on a college application and how that prevents people from applying to college. And, you know, I think that it, comparing this with community reinforcement is incredibly important. And there are some things that we as psychologists simply can't do, like, like take that off their record so that they could then get a job. And that's something that we need to be advocating for, I think at a federal level, um, to remove some of those consequences, um, that would prevent someone from escaping. And that's part of the problem I have with people's, you know, contingency management is really effective. Um, it's not only effective as a treatment, but it's an effective of, uh, it's an effective demonstration of how behavioral principles can help, uh, someone move towards things that they, that really matter for them. Uh, in yeah. their lives and, 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 and can help people become contributing members of society. And when we ignore this treatment, which is so effective, we also ignore the lessons it can teach us about, mm. you know, about yeah. policy. I, I agree completely. Well, well said, well done. I remember you reminded me of a, during that cocaine ep- epidemic, I've been talking so much about, um, a lot of it was in our urban areas in um, a lot of it in African-American urban areas and, you know, crack cocaine was just wreaking havoc in those, in those neighborhoods. And so people came up with this idea of um, midnight basketball leagues. And uh, truthfully, I think it was a wonderful idea and the politicians got hold of it. Oh, we're going to be holding hands and getting people in basketball at night. And they, you know, these, adolescents who were so vulnerable, you know, they, they were in these um, impoverished neighborhoods and, you know, they were excited about the idea of being able to get in a league and compete mm-hmm. and they were going to get special attention is late at night and everybody would be watching. 
And so it just saddened me a bit. But, um, you know, why, why do, uh, why are we so insensitive as policymakers, we, the, you know, the larger community? And I sometimes think that the, the, the um, importance of reinforcement in everyday life is not effectively taught in high school and undergraduate, you know, so that the larger community understands that, you know, it's a critical process. I mean, uh, I've seen, you know, it's like respiration or something, and yet the general community doesn't really know about it. And yet, you know, I think it's a, it's a, and there's, I think there's pretty solid evidence, a fundamental, um, factor in vulnerability to affective disorders you know you just have a low density of positive reinforcement in your life and yeah. your mood is not good and your ability to access other sources of reinforcement begins to deteriorate so it's just um yeah it's just fundamentally important and i think you also point out sam um the role of us who are trained in that area to do more advocacy and I should do more and just to uh, push back a little bit um, when when things are misrepresented in the literature and the mainstream press. And then when policymakers like um, the CMS Inter Inspector General's office, I keep making reference to, they need it respectfully to be, you know, to hear alternative views. And we're trying to do that. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, when you have the Oval Office weighing in, that's about as, <laughs> about as high as you could get in our country, I think. Right. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. 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 I think, I think there's, I kind of see it as kind of three phases, right? Like, you know, CM's kind of in the treatment phase. Um, and then there's kind of the preventative phase, which yeah. um, Sam talked a little bit about here about, you know, individuals who are low SES or, you know, just have less access to, to opportunities for reinforcement yeah. that are reliable and, you know, effective, right? Place people at risk, right? And then when people get into recovery, we, we you know, we kind of remove access also yeah. from those individuals to get alternative reinforcement like education or housing or you know employment and i think that that these behavioral principles are embedded right in each of these phases in a very meaningful very real yeah. way and that i think is not talked about at the policy or public health or yeah. criminal justice reform levels yeah. um that i think um, voices like yourself and, and others who have really kind of spearheaded some of these some of these approaches um, yeah, could do, you know, and that we need yeah, to yeah, get, yeah. Get, get these voices heard. Uh, we need to have policymakers listen. And so uh, really thank you for for uh, for bringing that up. I think it's it's important. Um, you know, we as treatment providers provide treatment and we can advocate for that. But there's a whole other slew of things we've had people on Adam Leventhal talked about this, Matt Field talked a little bit about this, um, mm -hmm. uh, about, you know, opportunity deserts and things that are kind of happening out there right. and that we can, uh, if we think of public health in that way, we can make, you know, community enrichment programs, you know, simple things, yeah. midnight basketball, right? Like that costs us very little, yeah. but the effect it has on the lives of the people involved is yeah. big. Oh, and it's immediate, I, I, right? Slam dunking on somebody while everybody's watching in the middle of the night at the absolutely. park is going to do it. 
right? There are very few things that are going to do it like cocaine, but that is up there, right? That's up there. That's up there. That, that's up there, right? <laughs> yeah, and so, you know, but it costs us very little, like the lights for the, yeah. right? Like it costs us very little. Um, and so I just think simple things like that could make such a huge difference um, along the way. And so I'm really glad you brought that up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I want to I want to mention one other observation I think is consistent with that, Noah, and that is, um, so so I mentioned the you know the cocaine epidemic, the urban area, and then those those urban same urban areas have been vulnerable for their for heroin for decades. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, just almost associated with that. Um, and why? Like, what makes those neighborhoods so vulnerable? Well, a lot of it was just the loss of manufacturing, which hit the urban areas, Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York, oh, yeah. much sooner than it hit the rural areas. And what I find just pretty amazing, but I, I really don't have any doubt scientifically about why, when, when the uh, manufacturing left the rural areas, the jobs left the rural areas, you got the same behavior as we associate it with urban ghettos, you know, opioid addiction, IV drug use, whoever thought, you know, in central Iowa, in rural Vermont, you would have those problems, but you create the same economic conditions. That is the absence of opportunity for meaningful reinforcement for a meaningful future you get the same behavior and i'm struck even the same like classes of drugs you know they're opioids and it's just amazing yeah Um, great point absolutely i mean west virginia right like you yeah yeah Yeah, cleveland yeah Yeah, or not even cleveland like rural ohio um kentucky places like that that's actually a great point Yeah. yeah Well, and and I think, like you said, Noah, this is these principles matter across the temporal spectrum of like, you know, etiology to to maintenance and recovery of substance use. But it also they they are the building blocks of of our treatments and then of our policies. Um, So Mm -hmm. I think from from micro to a macro scale, um, these processes are really important. Um, and I think getting contingency management out there, showing people the efficacy and then, and then accepting it as a, as a good treatment, I think is critical towards making a step towards these things being advanced in, in, in many of our other areas like policy. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree. I agree. Good. You know, stronger advocacy from those of us who, um, you know, are in a position to, where we understand it and we can do that, um, and then I, I think if we can crack the nut on, on Medicaid support, mm-hmm. I think the um, community clinics are ready. Um, just they don't, have, they don't have any other tools at this yeah. point to work. So they're ready if they could get reimbursement and adequate resources to provide the treatment. And um, so I, I think um, then it would soften things up to be using incentives and support thoughtful ways yeah. and prevention efforts and community enrichment efforts. So that, so that, but all in the context of, of trying to reduce um, the problem of drug use disorders in our community. Um, but then we could also advocate too for, you know, just in general, more economic development, more educational exactly. attainment support 
you know, the association between low educational attainment and uh, vulnerability to substance use disorders is just amazingly yeah, strong. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully so, some of, maybe this, this review, which hopefully will be coming out around the same time uh, that this episode drops and we'll be happy to link it. Um, right. You know, that hopefully it, it sort of opens the floodgates to a lot of this stuff happening and, and it becoming more accepted and, and maybe, some of these contingencies that the war on drugs have sort of created can, can also start to, to crumble, uh, p- give people opportunity again. So well, yeah. we really appreciate it, Steve. This has been awesome, fantastic discussion. Um, I've learned a lot and um, I just feel fired up about contingency management. So we're, mm-hmm. we're going to kind of shift into our take home messages. So these are just, just, brief 30 seconds to a minute of, you know, for, for different stakeholder groups. So what do you think the take-home message would be for people who are in recovery or, you know, wanting to start that journey? That treatment works and that uh, contingency management is one type of treatment and one aspect of our treatment portfolio that can be really helpful. Um, It's important that you have reasons not to use and they can start with a simple reason of earning an incentive, but they will grow from there for many of the things that they, they already desire, a happier um, lifestyle and more enriching life, enriching lifestyle, better family life, better employment. Um, but it starts with just, just um, believing that treatment would work and that um, things like contingency management can help them get there. What would you say to practitioners who are listening? Yeah, I mean, follow the science that 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 we that we um, do these studies. They're supported by the federal government. They're really hard to do. They are very rigorous, and the evidence is very strong that contingency management could be helpful. It's not a silver bullet. No one's trying to say it is, but. Um, your clinical services will be stronger if you have contingency uh, management as a part of them. Well, my next question is policymakers. It sounds like that exact point could be applied <laughs> yeah, yeah. to policymakers. In fact, I've been formulating it to, you know, to say, share with the Inspector General's office. I mean, yeah. you know, we do the science for a reason. And right. We, you know, it's overwhelming. And, you, you know, you want to withhold this scientifically based efficacious treatment for a disorder that's driving overdose rates through the ceiling sure. because you're afraid there could be fraud, that that's not satisfactory. We right. have to do better. They need to do better. Um, we as a society need to do better. Absolutely. What would you say um, about underserved populations? What would be the take-home message there? Oh, yeah. Well, I think like we were discussing a few minutes ago that we can learn from these interventions, what controls drug use and make, you know, vulnerability to drug use. So these underserved populations um, are more vulnerable on the average for reasons of under enrichment, under uh, loss of less opportunity. Economic opportunity is a big part. We live in a capitalistic society. If there, if that opportunity is missing, it leaves us vulnerable, <laughs> all kinds of problems. Um, so I think it's not any flaw in character or makeup of those communities. It's a lack of opportunity. Mm. Well said. 
That is a brilliant response. Um, <laughs> I, I love that point. Thank you for yeah. saying that. So this has been great. I've learned a lot. Um, and our final question for you, um, you've been really incredibly successful in your career. Um, do you have any advice for trainees out there, people like me? Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> great question. I, you know, I've been involved in training throughout my career. I really enjoy it. Um, I think productivity is critically important. Um, being excited about your science, I'm still excited about all features. But I mentioned, you know, over the holiday weekend, working on proofs for this new article. I mean, you know, that sound, can sound so self-serving, I don't mean it, but I have a lot of publications, but they're still very reinforcing. I'm excited about trying to make uh, contributions. I mentioned early on that, um, that I was driven into this field, believing that we can bring science to human behavior and try and um, be more effective in, in helping people improve their lives through it. Um, so I always have to convince myself, like when I write a paper or write a grant, you, you mentioned a 2004 paper. I, um, you know, I spent a lot of time on that paper and I have to drink the Kool-Aid like this, I think, can make a contribution. Right. I'm not doing it because, oh, the chair said that I need to get a grant, although, you know, that's always there or whatever, but it's because I believe in this stuff. I'm excited by it. I want to advance it. I feel very fortunate to have an opportunity to, to do science. You know, it's not that long in the history of humankind that we could get paid to uh, study and try and advance yeah. understanding on important things like, like addiction. So, I feel um, very fortunate to have the opportunity. I, so I think, I think productivity, you, it, to be productive, you gotta, have, you gotta be getting the reinforcers for it. So make sure you, you know, are around people who are excited about it like you are and you can share and get social re, you know, reinforcement for, with each other, from each other. Um, I mentioned my colleagues, Warren and Ken, and we still to this day, well, you know, share um, developments in each other's careers and complement each other on papers that we think are, are important. Um, so I say, you know, get yourself excited, be productive, drink the Kool-Aid, don't put things out just because they think they'll get you, you know, whatever, believe that this is good, this is important stuff, this is, this is where, where we need to go, and um, I, I think you'll do pretty well. And I want to compliment you too. I mean, you're already, I can tell just from the conversation, I was, um, you know, very impressed and excited by some of your insights and inspired. So uh, you're off to great start and, and uh, you know, I'm sure it's going to continue. Thank you. High, high praise. Indeed. That's very kind. I mean it sincerely. Next time on The Addiction Psychologist, we have decided to keep our series on interventions going. And we're lucky to have Dr. Eric Garland joining us. 
Eric is a professor, distinguished endowed chair in research, associate dean for research, and the director of the Center on Mindfulness and Integrative Health Intervention Development in the College of Social Work at the University of Utah. He's going to be talking to us about his groundbreaking work on mindfulness-oriented recovery enhancement. Do not miss this episode. 